0: Okay, and welcome to our afternoon session on odds, ends, and civil issues. Uh, We're going to be talking about service of process, uh, garnishment, waivers, deferrals, uh, and appeal bonds and costs. Uh, I'm Charles zander I think most of you know me by now. Uh, With me is Daniel Areola. He is the court manager at South Mountain Justice Court. He's been there since 2012, he was filming. Um, he is also a certified public manager so let's welcome Daniel Here you go. and you should all have signed in and have your packets and we are going to start with service of process All right, service of process for protective orders is covered by Arizona Rule of Protective Order Procedure 31, and that is um, it must be served by a person authorized by Wolf, uh, Arizona Rule of Civil Procedure 4D only. It may be served in court. An attorney cannot accept service. For those of you who know me, I only make two mistakes a year. Uh, and one of the mistakes last year was I did allow attorney to accept service on a protective order and got slapped down by the uh, uh, Court of Appeals there. We don't, um, attorneys cannot accept service on protective orders. We had a person that was trying to serve one out of state trying to do it by certified mail, That doesn't work. Uh, if you want to do it out of state, you need to do it pursuant to that state's uh, service and process rules, which means hire a process server in that state. In 2020, service will be automatic by law enforcement officers. So what will happen uh, come January is it will be out of the hands of the plaintiff, out of the hands of the protective party to serve those protective orders. They will be served by our constables and police departments and sheriff's offices. All right, so we did just refer to rule of civil procedure 4D and that says service must be made by a sheriff or deputy, a constable or deputy, a private process server certified under the code of judicial administration or any other person specially appointed by the court, service may also be made by a party or that party's attorney if expressly authorized by these rules. And our our service rules for justice courts are provided for in Rule 113, that basically provides a guidepost to Rules 4.1 and 4.2, the Rules of Civil Procedure. Under Um, Rule 4F of the Rules of Civil Procedure, a party can accept service, waive service, or voluntarily appear in court. So if they haven't been served and they do appear in court, you can ask if they're waiving service. For an individual, uh, under Rule 4.1D, you can deliver it personally. You can leave a copy at a dwelling with someone of suitable age who resides there. And so what is a suitable age? What? 12 and up. 12 and up? Okay. It's Anyone 12. else?
1: 13 and up.
0: 13 and yes. up? Mary? I, I
2: believe it's up to the process server to determine if that person is a suitable age or
0: discretion. All right. Mary says it's up to the process server. Uh, I've seen it as low as 14. Uh, I think younger than 14 years, it can be questionable. Um, of course, I know some people who are of suitable age who are not responsible enough to get served. Uh, but uh, you know, if, if it's gonna be up to the process server and if someone comes in on a motion to set aside and the affidavit indicates that the process was served on a 12 year old, you might wanna consider setting that aside if they say that they never got it. All right, so you can also deliver a copy to an agent authorized by appointment or by law to receive service of process. All right, so Rule 4.1 E through G covers minors. Minors under 16, you serve the minor and a parent or guardian. That goes for the uh, protective orders as well. If the minor or, or an adjudicated incompetent person has a guardian or conservator, you would serve the, the original person and the guardian or conservator, 4.1 I for a corporation or partnership. You deliver to a partner, an officer, a managing or general agent, or any other agent authorized by appointment or by law to receive service of process, and if the agent is one authorized by statute and the statute so requires, by also mailing a copy of each to the defendant. Yes. Alright, so if the corporation does not have a statutory agent that is covered under ARS 10-504B, and this does come up, I did have a JP ask me this one. If a corporation fails to appoint or maintain a statutory agent, the corporation commission is an agent of the corporation on whom process, notice, or demand may be served. And the, the trick there is if they if you are serving the corporation commission. Uh, then uh, they have thirty. The, corp, the defendant has thirty days to respond, not just twenty. For insurance companies, uh, under ARS 202201, 2221B, service of process against a foreign or alien foreign or alien insurer shall be made up only upon, only by service of process upon the director of the Department of Insurance. Charles. Yes. All
1: right. I'm fairly certain it says somewhere that you can't go directly to the corporation. You have to show some issue that you have made an in intent to serve any of the other matters. either they have a director, a officer, in the statute itself.
0: All right, so okay, um, Andrew says that in the statute you have to make an attempt to serve other people. Uh, this this provision is if there's no statutory agent, uh, you can always still always serve other people in the in the corporation. The uh, okay.
1: well, I think it says before you can go to the corporation to commission and for service, you've got to show that you have made an attempt to any other person of the, the company.
0: Okay. And that's probably the better practice, so um, he, uh, Andrew says that you have to try to serve other people. Again, if somebody comes in on a motion to set aside and service has been made up, upon the corporation commission rather than upon, upon the corporation itself, I think you'd be more likely to set that aside. But we can double check 10.504 b So for insurance companies, service uh, process against a foreigner or alien insurer shall be made only by service of process upon the director of the Department of Insurance Service against a domestic insurer shall be made upon the insurer in the manner provided by laws applying to corporations. And so your next question is, well, what is a domestic insurer? What is an alien insurer? An alien insurer is one formed under the laws of a country other than the United States. A foreign insurer is one formed under the laws of another state of the United States. So that might be a little counterintuitive, but that, those are the definitions of alien and foreign insurers. Okay, Alternative Service 4.1K, if the court allows alternative service, so what is that uh, preparatory phrase, if the court allows alternative service, the serving party must make a reasonable effort to provide the person with actual notice. In any event, the serving party must mail the summons in any court order authorizing alternative service to the last known business or residential address of the person being served. And 4.1L provides for publication. It must be published at least once a week for four successive weeks. And a newspaper published in the county where the action is pending. And if the last known address of the person to be served is in a different county and a newspaper in that county. And as opposed to a motion for alternative service when you serve by publication, That must be justified after service with a default hearing. We generally do those telephonically. Again, alternative service must be approved before service. And we do have a best practice on alternative service. That is at page 8 in your packet. please uh, read through this uh, because there are certain things that are certainly preferred and there are some that are absolute no-no's and some of the absolute no-no's are serving the statutory agent of the person's employer and uh, we have to be real careful when we're serving upon the state Uh, in fact the Attorney General does not want us to serve The employer when the employer is the state Uh, so go ahead and read those the other thing you want to do when you get a motion for alternative service is don't have them posted a place if there's no indication in the affidavit of attempted service that anyone is not living there Uh, generally you want to hear the dog is barking there's a car in the driveway the TV is on that indicates that at least somebody lives there Uh, the other thing that I try to do is always With posting, always require mail by certified mail and by regular mail um, because when is the last time you got good news by certified mail? Okay, someone who's not paying their bills is not going to sign for certified mail. Uh, So, at least if you send it by certified and regular mail, hopefully uh, they did get it. The other thing you need to do then is look at the affidavit of service when it comes in to make sure that they actually complied with the alternative service. Because uh, I have rejected defaults where the affidavit says they posted and mailed it certified mail. And I have ordered certified and regular mail and it did not indicate that they sent it by regular mail. So uh, look carefully at the, uh, at the affidavit of attempted service. Look carefully at the affidavit of completed service to make sure uh, that we, we really do want to ensure that this is going to go to the person. Any questions about alternative service? All right, your, your next question about publication is um, they published in the Asian Times and the defendant's not Asian. Is that okay? Dean, you're shaking your head. Asian? Asian Times or Jewish Times? Mary says yes. All right. who says that that's yet, that they they are newspapers of general circulation of Maricopa County. So who says that that is appropriate? Uh, It is general circulation, it is. Unfortunately um, that is valid service. There is a current, a case came out of the Court of Appeals last year, uh, just as Andrew indicated with the uh, Corporation Commission, that you, it actually suggested that perhaps the uh, plaintiff could look at the person's Facebook and social media accounts and try to reach them that way before they go to service by publication. That concerned collection attorneys because that could conceivably be a violation of federal law and be considered harassment. Um, So that uh, decision was a little interesting. Um, The other issue is in counties like Gila, which um, are very bifurcated you got Payson on one side and globe on the other and the person might live in Payson and you can publish in a Globe newspaper and that's general circulation in Gila County uh, same issues come up in Pinal County uh, so it's not a perfect it's not a perfect situation but you know, what, what is one of my what are the things you take away today is when you get the motion to set aside and somebody's been served by publication you might be more likely to go ahead and set that aside and
1: let them come in and defend the case. Did you have a question, Joe No, just a comment. Just the biggest uh, source of revenue for the Gila Bend Sun is publication. <laughs> okay, so for the podcast, the
0: biggest source the of revenue for the Gila, Gila Sun you know, is service by public. Yeah. Where, where does the Gila Sun publish? Gila Bend. Gila Bend, okay. For Maricopa County. Yes. Oh, there you go. So somebody could live in Wickenburg and they can punish and publish in the. Awesome. All right. So for out of state, that's 4.2B, service must be made by a person who's authorized to serve process under the laws of the state where service is made. You can also serve by mail publication or on the ADOT director if there is a motor vehicle involved. You can also serve by mail. You mail to the person at that address by any form of postage, prepaid mail that requires a signed and returned receipt. And the proof is the serving party received a signed return receipt, which indicates that the person received the described documents. Now, does that mean that it has to be signed by the defendant? Yeah. Mary says yes. Anyone say no? Unless it says restricted. All right. Andrew says not unless it says restricted. Kind of like remember what I said before is if you could defeat that no one who owes money is going to sign for certified mail, and if they actually had to sign their actual name to prove service by certified mail, then I suspect a lot of people would be signing as Donald Duck or Bite Me, Uh, in which case they could come in and say, well, it was served at my address, but I don't know who signed that. Uh, And we're, we're we're not requiring the postal workers um, to become process servers, so they're not going to stand there and demand to see your ID and um, and do an affidavit like an actual process server would. Um, so I think if it's signed by someone at that residence, to me that that's valid service. Do did you want to say anything, Danny? No, I would agree. Okay.
3: Sometimes the summons though looks like something from the lottery wins.
0: Sometimes the summons look.
3: Will look like an idol from the lottery winnings. i
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, and um, one of the th- this sign, is both signed
3: for lottery winnings, believe me.
0: Okay, so if you pretend to be a lottery, the lottery service. Um, this is one of the things where the law has not caught up with reality. Um, so no FedEx. It, it does have to be U.S. mail. All right. Yes. Can I um, Yes. Regarding uh, orders of protection.
4: You know, I have oh, we've moved on, we've been in the I know, I know, I <laughs> know. I was, you know, when you say service, by you know, when you have the listing, when I have someone in front of me, they say, well, how do I contact
3: you? I would say, oh, just go to
5: the window, they have the information. But who is, what is it that we're giving them? you know again? Yeah, typically, uh, when Well, repeat
0: the question, The I'm
1: sorry, it's just
5: so I understand, when when the question is, when... An order of protection is issued, and the person is then sent out to the window or to the clerical area to understand how to get that served. What are they actually being told? Yes. That's the question. Uh, I can tell you from experience. Uh, typically, what staff will go over some of their options on how uh, to get this method to get this paperwork served upon the defendant. Um, those options may include usage of the constables. It may include uh, usage of local police, and as well as private processors. Um, It really, typically parties will get all of those options and then based upon circumstances and scenarios of their situation, they can then try to determine which option may be best. Sometimes there's gonna be various and multiple attempts, um, but each option has their, their pros and cons to it. Um, And it really depends on what they're given. So typically there's three. It's the constable, a private process server, or um, the local police department. So that's typically what is delivered to the people uh, so they understand that it does need to be served. And and sometimes, in certain situations, um, orders of protection are a little different because it's usually uh, their relationship that's there um, and the reason why it's an order. On injunctions, Sometimes those may be a little bit more difficult to get served, so there may be a process of waiting uh, till the person's available or found uh, till, they, till they can be served because as you some of you may have seen that in today's age of technology we often get uh, requests for injunctions for actions electronically over the internet those kind of things so um, just depending on the circumstances, there's various options, but those are the main three. There are charges
4: for sheriffs. I mean, for um, the constable and the process
5: server. For orders of protection, there's no charge for the constable. Uh, for injunctions, there is. Um, and for process servers, uh, probably for both, they're, they're going to charge because that's their. I mean, that's their livelihood just to to get that served at a fee. So.
0: And if somebody goes to a city court, those will be, uh, the orders of protection are served for free by the city police department. Um, injunctions against harassment uh, generally are not served by the city police department. People will actually have to go hire a server. Yes? Question about O.P. So we just had a case, uh, the
6: O.P. was issued by the superior court. And the defendant, the, the petitioner lives in our, the Gilbert area and she went to Gilbert PD. Gilbert PD refused to serve for me. So she came to our court to ask. I said, okay, I I'll, I'll gave I'll give the constable, our constable's phone number to contact. I was just thinking about is any law mandate the officer no the where, to serve OP? All right, so the question
0: was that the Superior Court issued uh, an order of protection and the Gilbert police refused to serve it. And is there any law to that? Um, are you sure it was an OP and not an injunction? That, that's a little surprising that they wouldn't go ahead and do it. Uh, as of January 1st, there will be a law that says the law enforcement has to go ahead and serve it. Uh, it, it I mean, she could have gone to the sheriff or gone to the constable. Uh, I'm, I'm really surprised that the Gilbert police wouldn't serve that.
5: Just to add to that, real quick. Historically, I have seen where some police departments have policies where they won't serve um, on an appointment type basis or um, will only serve if the parties are there and they're called to see while the parties are present. So if you contacted certain police departments and said, my husband or whomever is out of work at this time, can you please go serve him? Sometimes in some departments, there are policies that will keep them or prevent them from doing it in that manner. Now, if they're both at home and the police are called out to the scene and the person is there, that's a different story and more likely they'll, they'll serve. But I have heard of scenarios and departments that will only serve upon being called to a scene and the person being there. my memory is still-
2: the says any order of protection that is um, issued by the um, JP course, the constable serves, um, and any order of protection that is um, issued by the police, de- uh, the cities, the, that city police department is responsible to serve. And that is and what it will say in and January. The Court, and the Superior Court will be the Sheriff's Office.
0: Right, that's what it will say in January. So for for everyone, um, in in January, uh, if it's issued by Justice Court, then the Constable is supposed to serve it. If it's issued by Superior Court, the Sheriff's Department. If it's issued by City Court, then by the City Police Department. Alright, so for Landlord Tenants, one of the advantages of having a lease is that you can proceed under the Residential Landlord Tenant Act or the Mobile Home Act, which means that you can post and mail. And Post means that you do leave a copy conspicuously on the main entrance and send it on the same day by certified mail uh, if, you, if you're not subject to the ARLTA, then you have to have service the old-fashioned way, which can, can be more difficult uh, There is currently a, uh, a rule change that is pending that would require the landlord to attach the entire lease to the complaint which uh, will be quite problematic if you're serving by posting in mail, because now there's a whole bunch of personal information that's available uh, at the front door, um, and we've opposed that will change. Small claims is provided for by statute, and it says, in addition to any other available method of service, you may, be, you may, be, may serve by registered or certified mail. Services deemed complete on the date of delivery of the registered or certified mail to the defendant as indicated on the return receipt that is received and filed with the court either in person or by first class mail. So again, uh, this doesn't say that it has to be signed by the defendant. It just, that it is received. Our courts, some of our courts were following a practice where it had to be signed by the defendant and I don't think that is authorized. And if the date of delivery was not entered by the postal carrier or is illegible, service is deemed complete on the date the return receipt is received and filed with the court, either in person or by first class mail. The clerk of the small claims division may make service by certified restricted mail return receipt requested. So some questions about small claims. Can you do service by publication? Andrew says no. Mary says no. You said yes? Okay, I say yes, Uh, because let's go back in what's the first part of the statute in addition to any other available methods of service. Service by publication is an available method of service. Now, under the proposed rules of small claim procedure, the pilot B that most likely will be adopted, the time frames that are involved in that process make it pretty unlikely that you'll be able to serve by publication in a timely manner.
6: So if it's served, you say yes,
0: serve, serve by the publication. So do we schedule a hearing default hearing for that? for several we, we do? Uh, you would, well, you're gonna yes. You would schedule a default hearing. But like I said, I I, I Judge William uh, Gerald Williams says that he is, would allow service by publication in small claims. I don't think we see it very often. The whole purpose you go to small claims is you you can serve by certified mail. Um, And like I said, once we go to the new rules, you probably can't do that in a timely fashion. So, is there alternative service? No. Why is there no alternative service? Yes. Because I need to file a motion for alternative service. Okay, remember you need to file a motion for alternative service. And how many motions do we have in small claims? Just Just two. And alternative service, not one of them. Garnishments and so, House Bill 2230 is just signed. It will be effective at the end of August. And uh, so, New 121574C says the judgment creditor, and the manner required for a summons by rules of the court in civil matters or by certified mail, return receipt requested, shall serve on the garnishing two copies of the summons and bit of garnishment and a copy of the underlying judgment. So um, you can, as of. certainly by September one garnishments can be served by certified mail and for banks you can also serve by certified mail return receipt on the statutory agent so any questions about the service of process
5: Of this packet um, and this presentation is going to be garnishments um, regarding earnings. Um, and so the applicable statutes uh, are 121598 12, to 121598.17, and those are the statutes that govern a lot of these procedures that we we're going to talk about in the next few slides. Uh, the non earnings uh, garnishments have different statutes and, and some different. Areas so um, as far as federal rule 15 uh, restriction of discharge of employment by reason of garnishment uh, it is illegal to terminate an employee for the simple fact that they are being garnished uh, the discharge of an employee for the reason of this um, could be subject to a garnishment for anyone in deadness they, they cannot release an employee just because they're being garnished um, if so, there are penalties that could be had, um, up to fine uh, not more than a thousand dollars. So uh, we can talk about that a little bit more as time goes on. But uh, employers cannot release their employees for being rushed. Social security numbers. Uh, do you have the- oh, I'm sorry. Okay, social security numbers, Uh, JCRCP, that's Justice Court Rules Civil Procedure, Uh, 108D talks about social security numbers on financial account or account numbers. Uh, Typically this needs to be kept to the last four digits. The entire social or the entire account number should not be on any of the filings. Uh, Typically a lot of the people and employers understand this, but unfortunately we do get some that once in a while, they have the entire number on So uh, keep that in mind that they should only be filed with the last four digits. Question. Yes.
6: So sometimes we see this um, from the answer from the post office, they say, okay, because the credit did given provide the, the employees, social security numbers, so you cannot find it. So, uh, that. So said um, not provide the,
5: um, social skills, so Okay. So what's the question?
6: The question is, do you say you should not provide the, you provide the last four
5: years. Okay, so uh, if I understand the question, it's, it's, the, the form says that it should only provide the last four, however, she is unable to, to file an answer because they don't have the social Well, I mean, the rule—the rule indicates as far as filings into the court. Uh, if the if the garnishee is unable to process due to not having the full number or due to not having any social numbers, because sometimes that's another issue is they didn't even receive the last four. Uh, but typically, if it's just a name and they're not able to proceed, then that would be something the car- the creditor would need to work out with the garnishee. This rule is, is based upon the filings that come into the court. So, their exchange of information or how they get the information to the garner to determine if the person works for them or not is a separate issue versus this rule that talks about when they're filing with us what we want, and what we expect. Any other questions? So, some of the terminology that we're going to cover today. Uh, judgment creditor, that's the person who owns the judgment. Judgment debtor is the person who lost the suit. Typically, it's the defendant, but not always. Garnishy is the employer or financial institution or renter. We'll talk about that. Non exempt earnings, that's the money that's available after taxes. We also have debt scheduling, which are organizations who assist in payment plans. Not, I'm not sure how big these are now. These used to be, for a while these were pretty big uh, companies that were helping out a lot of people. but uh, deliver, the term deliver, hand deliver or first class mail uh, to serve is usually by process service. and I say usually, not as of September one. Not as, as, as of September one. Uh, earnings, wages, salary, commission, bonus, pension, or retirement program disposable earnings, net paid or take home, and conform a copy is to make it look like the original. So all these you'll hear during the rest of this presentation. So, due process. Due process is a big uh, step in the garnishment procedure, and basically due process can be broken down into two parts, notice, plus the opportunity to be heard. Uh, When the garnishment's filed, each party has the in a garnishment must have their due process that includes the debtor and the garnish. Uh, notice equals service documents, opportunity to garnish, opportunity to the garnish they, so they can file the answer, opportunity to the debtor so they can request the hearing. Um, so each party throughout the process has been given their opportunity to be heard by the court. this anybody have
3: a garnish appear?
0: Garnish mm-hmm. I've never seen one. Yeah. Let's see if you get the creditor. Alright, so uh, Judge Wolcott asked if any garnish actually appears. They they do appear. Um, generally you end up just reducing it from twenty-five percent to fifteen so. uh, and, percent. and I did look up the statute on service uh, it does not require service on anyone else. The statute says that the corporation fails to appoint or maintain a statutory agent at the address on the records of the commission. Uh, the commission is an agent and may be served. While the
3: yes. is a party, uh, what is their position? What
5: would be the point of their appearance? I'm wondering. Typically, typically the she is not required to appear unless they are in some sort of default. So um, while yes, they maybe no, that's
3: true. If the, if the judgment is coming against the garn uh You bet they're going to be there, but uh, where they're where they're typically not interested. I've never seen the appear.
5: Yeah, it, it is very rare that they will appear, um, even when they're in default. It's very rare that they appear. Uh, but typically, you know, the good rule of thumb are the, that we try to utilize. is if they've been served, then at least provide them the notice. Whether they choose to appear or not, they can't say they haven't been notified. But you are correct, it is very rare that a garnish actually shows
0: to a, any yep. kind of garnishment. I misheard his question. Yes.
1: One of the things that uh, I see a lot in uh, the request for OCLs is the opportunity in the debtor for appear hearing i turned more back because the Garnishee has not indicated that he's provided that document to the uh, debtor. Incomplete, send it back, start down, finish it and turn it back in. But I have a lot of people miss that.
5: So what, are the, what, what uh, the statement was was that one of the, the reasons that uh, continually may not be entered or signed was for incomplete delivery to um, the debtors themselves uh, that is part of some of the requirements that we're going to touch on here um, and yes it's definitely something that is overlooked uh, it could be grounds to not issue an order of continually if it's incomplete or the, the practice or the process wasn't done in full so so these judgments um, as most of you all realize we are in Arizona. All of these garnishments shall cover Arizona judgments. Typically these will all be out of our own justice courts that we'll be dealing with and in rare occasions people will try to have a foreign judgment um, or a judgment from another state collected upon because the person now resides in our state. Um, that's not something that the justice courts get involved with. Foreign judgments Are filed and identified through spirit court so majority of the cases that you'll be hearing and these rules that we're going to be discussing the statutes are based upon not only Arizona judgments but uh, wages earned in Arizona and or bank accounts in Arizona so uh, does that mean that sometimes garnishments aren't signed for companies out of state I've seen it it may not be correct but it does happen so
2: Yes. There are sometimes where
5: garnishments are filed and entered, and continuing these may be signed for companies that may not be located in Arizona. Um, it should be, but if it's not caught and/or it's entered, um, as well as the parties, um, allowing the process to move forward. You know, there's there's a lot of things that usually happen when that isn't caught. But typically it's not it's not common but it does happen.
2: Um, but again, are you saying that the defendant is working does not live in Arizona he's not working in Arizona and we slept the court and all the way through the continuing lean? Is that what you're saying?
5: Because well, what I'm saying is that based upon, there have been situations, and I have experience where there have come times where the person requests a hearing or asked for this to come to court during the garnishment process, and it then comes to light or to the court's attention that the person does not either A, work in Arizona or reside in Arizona, or the company may not be from Arizona. So there's things that the judge has to then take into consideration also, because you know, there are companies that span several states, so maybe the person did work in Arizona when they were served and have then moved. Uh, but typically, a lot of that, if it's an oversight, will come during a time of a, uh, of a hearing. Uh, but like I said, it is very rare, uh, most of our judgments and our garnishments happen from our courts, so it's not something that we see very often. But you know, like anything, things will slip through the cracks when you're dealing with. Hundreds and hundreds of cases.
0: Just like someone has to domesticate a a judgment in another state in superior court, uh, if it's clear that the defendant lives and works in a different state now, I mean, the judgment may have been from our court, and they now live and work in a different state, then we can't do a garnishment that does have to be domesticated in that state through that state's superior court system.
3: Well, if the defendant has property here or assets
0: here, or bank account here, we can still go after it, you know? Okay, that's a non okay, earning, non-earnings. Yeah, if the, they have property, here, we're talking about earnings, if they live and work in a different state and you're trying to garnish their wages, you have to do it in that other state. Yes, I had
1: a, a case before where the defendant was working for ASU Charter. Pay was getting paid from Virginia, and Virginia responded as a sheet That in order to process that, had to go to, do the same process they do in Arizona through Superior Court Register over there, and then they could do the garnishment for that. Yeah. so that was something unique I never seen.
5: Yeah, so so basically the, the what Jose's telling us is that he's had experience with people having to take our judgments and record them in other states as well so. yes. but it doesn't happen very often no. okay so 12 grounds for issuance uh, Justice of the peace shall issue the writ of garnishment for earnings only in cases in which a party to the action is a judgment creditor uh, there are provision under twelve twenty four oh one. there are provisional remedies a writ can issue prior to judgment um, on non-earnings only. Uh, that, that again is something very rare, but it is available and, and possible. Uh, more often than not, earnings happens from a judgment and, and has to happen from a judgment. So,
0: All right, and this slide is a slide done by uh, Judgment Murray, uh, where he did. Wash garnishment when it was clear that the defendant went and worked in a different state. So you do have uh, potential language to use there if you do encounter that. And I'll let you do this one. Okay, so uh,
5: the next slide is a garnishment earnings grid, and um, there are a lot of steps to this. Uh, the good thing I will say to all, to most of our members of the audience, as a judge or pro uh, Most of these are handled administratively until you get to the very end. So uh, for those of us who are in administration, um, get familiar with this. Judges, you just need to know a lot of this information. But um, basically, I'll, I'll kind of let you look over that. Um, there's a lot of information here. I don't necessarily know if we want to take the time to go through each individual box and step, um, because most of this will be covered in a lot of our upcoming slides here. If we haven't covered it already, so uh, it is definitely good material to reference back to or to keep handy, um, just to understand some of the processes. To, to that, yes. Can we talk about at this point the
1: signing of the continuing link? Was that like I would
5: say that's coming. That okay. is okay. coming okay. in the slides, so just we'll, we'll get there. Okay. So the application of the red. Application and writ, I'm sorry, 12-15-9803, writ of garnishment after the judgment creditor or a person in his behalf makes an application in writing. Uh, What about the amounts, calculations? Should the courts be concerned? So, let me ask the group. Should the courts be concerned with the amounts and the calculations upon filing the application for writ? Mary says no. Anybody say yes? It's defendant's call.
6: Oh.
5: What's that? I
7: think it's
5: a defendant's call. defendant's call. I will tell you out of experience, typically the courts at this point, during their initial uh, application and writ, most of the courts that I've had experience dealing with are not concerned at this point. Uh, the reason being is that this is the initial step in the process. Uh, oftentimes it can be viewed as the summons of the person to be notified and their opportunity to be heard, Some in that due process we talked about so uh, as far as the numbers being crunched and, and being completely reviewed uh, it's typically not done at this point because there's a, a, a many more steps that come that this review process and even to the fact that prior to the order of continuing lien being signed that's when the numbers should really be scrutinized and make sure that they, they're all alignment. So typically it doesn't, it isn't concern, a concern of the courts at this point.
0: And yet, I do get a lot of questions from judges who are concerned about the withholdings and, and how that actually gets calculated. And so something that you never actually see but the parties do work on are the actual worksheets. So if you turn to page 44 in your packet and then page 45, you'll see one that actually we did do the math on. And we're going to go through that. So this is the garnishes non-exempt earnings statement that will be filled out. And so it covers, you'll see a question number one covers the following pay period. Do you currently employ the judgment debtor no. When was the last day they worked for you? Is the judgment debtor owed any earnings for this pay period? No or yes. Judgment debtor's gross earnings for this pay period. So we said that for this pay period, their gross earnings were two thousand dollars. So if um, that, so that's four thousand a month. So this person gets paid, paid forty-eight thousand a year. And so your um, disposable earnings, that's their gross, minus deductions required by law, we put that down as um, 1323 And then 25% of line six is $330.70. They are paid biweekly. The, and this is the number at number nine that most surprises people. Um, minimum wage is still $7.80. Who does that shock? All right, come on, raise your hand if you thought it was higher than that. Uh, minimum wage is seven dollars and eighty cents. So we actually do multiply the minimum wage and take that out of there. So um, line nine mul- uh, multiplied by the factor selected in line eight is 468, line six minus 10 is $855. Amount from line seven or line eleven, whichever is smaller, is three thirty seventy-five. And number thirteen is one that I get questions about. Amount withheld for other court ordered assignment for support of a person or other garnishment or levy for collection of taxes. And this person is zero. But if they did have child support, if they had or if they had other garnishment, that number would come out at line thirteen, which means, Andrew, if if you reduce a garnishment from twenty-five to fifteen percent, and that person gets another judgment against them, and gets garnished a second time, then that other ten percent can be taken by the second judgment creditor. Yes. I
2: disagree.
0: You disagree. Okay. They can try. There might not be anything left, but. Um,
2: The garnish has to stand in line. Okay. So once, if this judge says this person is indigent, because she had them in front of her court, and she declared this person indigent, this judge cannot come in and say, oh no, I'm taking the other 10%. Otherwise, the law wouldn't be written
1: this way.
0: Okay, Mary says no. Okay. Um.
2: And I'll tell you why I know. Remember, I wasn't committee when this garnish was lost, first came into effect.
0: Yeah, I, if, if you're at a point where you're reducing someone's garnishment from 25% to 15%, um, there probably isn't anything there for a second one to get anyway, so um, they can just wait in line. All right? So line 12 minus line 13 is the amount withheld. So $330.75 um, would be the amount withheld. There's a $5 processing fee. So you see, their take-home pay is three thirteen twenty-three, and if you reduce that to fifteen percent, three twenty-five is going to be, or three thirty, is taken out, so that they're going to get less than a thousand dollars for their two-week paycheck. But um, like I said, one of the big questions I always get is. Um, for child support and that is subtracted. So if the the child support is um, a fairly higher number, there isn't gonna be anything left for garnishment. So any questions about the worksheet?
5: Slide uh, talks about who can sign the writ, um, and there's best practice uh, as of April of 2014 that talked about the clerks may use the JP signature stamp to issue writs of garnishment. Question. Yes, it's inconsistent with the guideline sheet issued
6: by ALC. It says the writs should be signed by the JP. So it's inconsistent.
5: Okay. Um, and that may very well be. Uh, the best practice is, is designed to effectively help out our courts and, and move forward in our uh, with our caseloads and may sometimes differ from the AOC opinion and what they believe. As the AOC governs the entire state, which includes small rural counties, uh, sometimes the needs um, for stamping or best practices like this uh, may, be, may come about because of the volume and because of the size of the courts that we in Maricopa County have. So it very well may be one of those scenarios where the laws or the rules or guidelines haven't caught up with the actual times. So uh, it, that is possible, but in practicality, um, if a JP in Maricopa County had to sign every writ of garnishment that came across, that some of them would do, would do only that. Um, because of the the levels in front and cases that we have, so.
0: And a JP can certainly choose to go ahead and sign them all. The best practices are not mandatory; those are suggestions. That best practice was adopted before I started.
5: Okay, so this is. Okay, so uh did I sorry I lost my place here. Application or red? No, it was service. Okay. Service Pond Garnish. So, service upon Garnish. Garnessy is served with two sets of garnishment forms. Uh, set one, which include, uh, is for the garnish to complete, and this includes the a copy of the non-exempt earning statement. That's the form that Charles just went over with everybody. Uh, Ganshee is to deliver uh, to employee this set that includes a copy of the judgment so the delivery can be done by mail or handed um, and this is because if it's served by mail it's it's good to note this and good and important to note this because if it's served by mail uh, then five days has to be added to the calculation. So, serving the debtor a second time, aside from the garnishee having to deliver the paperwork to the debtor, uh, the creditor within three days is responsible to serve uh, the garnishee, I'm sorry, the creditor within three days of serving the garnishee is responsible to serve the debtor. Um, What their responsibility to serve them with is one copy of the writ, two copies of the notice, and one copy of the hearing request and many process servers also serve uh, the data by mail, so it's typically being served personally. At this point, it's typically being served personally and by mail. Okay, so here's another uh, grid uh, or outline of information, and just to briefly go over it, it talks about what we just focused on. So. Creditors at the top, uh, servers on garnishy, garnishment on garnishy and debtor. Sorry, it's really small on my print. So Um, so with that, the garnishee is served with, and then it has all the documents they are being served with. And then it has the creditor within three days of serving the garnishy is responsible for, and that covers a lot of the information we spoke about in the previous slide. Uh, as well as the garnishee then, as it follows down even further, the then delivers the information to the debtor. So this is basically an outline of the process uh, that goes through the service of the writ. Garnishee is responsible. Um, this t- this you know, kind of covers what we talked about. Deliver copies of the garnishment to the employer. Uh, that's the applicable statute complete the answer and they may or can charge uh, a maximum of $50 pursuant to statute. Uh, non-exempt earning statement uh, for each paycheck uh, they can take five dollars for each pay period. Uh, file an answer with creditor, debtor, debtor and the court. Uh, hold monies until he, he receives order of continuing lien uh, or discharge and the $5 if, uh, is usually taxed to the debtor. So these are all the responsibilities that the garnishee has once they're served um, because that's when their process begins once they've been served with the writ. The answer, uh, the answer shall be under oath. Uh, multiple debtors, garnishees shall answer for each name. Uh, garnishee may file without an attorney. Some of the questions that we often hear regarding this is, what is under oath, is it, nece- is it necessary to have a notary, um, or is it simply we could just have the statement under penalty or perjury? Uh Does anybody still see answers come across their court or in their filings that are being notarized? Some. Typically, that you'll see the verbiage under penalty or perjury. I think that's kind of what we've moved to over the years, a lot of forms that used to require a notary. Now, have that verbiage on. Um, we accept the, without a notary or statement. Uh, typically, have, it needs to probably have one or the other. Uh, if it doesn't have either, that would then be questionable if we're going to accept it or if you will accept it. And what about when the answer is filed uh, with the continuing legal? Typically, this is going to be something on the administration side, so your court staff will know that the answer has in the file, but they may be rece- they may receive the order continuing lien and attached to that continuing lien is the copy of the guard answer. At that time, usually it will be entered into the system and that will begin the calculation of time to uh, get it to you as judges or pro-tems and get this signed. So. If it's filed with the continuing lien, it'll still be processed, it'll just may take a little bit longer because we have to allow the debtor to object, time timely object. If the garnishy fails to answer. So oh, you.
4: Yes.
3: Yeah. Yeah, go Yes.
5: That's
4: actually my question regarding uh, the garnishy's answer. Okay. Because one before I I sign a computer. I always look at the date of when the garnishee said they mailed. Sometimes it's hand delivered. Occasionally it's mailed. So my, what I've been using time is timing um, is well, 10 days, plus if they mail it, it's five business days. So it's basically like 15 days before I would sign the continuing mail.
5: Which is a good rule of thumb. Uh, the, the question was, and so everybody could hear it, uh, the time frame between the filing of the Garnishie's answer to the signing, uh, or at least the, the initial date that the order continuing League can be signed, uh, is at least 10 days. And I'm assuming you're saying 10 business days or 10? 10, no, t- 10, 10 continuing days. 10 calendar days. That's what it says, right? Okay. But if they mail it, then I'm giving the, um, the debtor an additional five business days. Five business days. Before I sign it. Okay. So um,
4: because of the mail.
5: Okay. So Usually in you ten
4: business days. Ten business days. Typically it's because, the other way around. Okay, I got a note on my so phone. <laughs> I get mixed up. So I put a note, but basically I'm doing ten days because I think some people were questioning why am I not signed I was I was sending a lot back saying give it to me, you know, like in a letter eight and finally he says, Look, this is this is what my mind thought is.
5: As far as that and, and that is definitely a good rule of thumb. In fact, many courts probably already have that set up administratively to where the staff will hold this to allow the 10 days or time for a, a, an objection by the other party. Uh, because we don't know, unfortunately, always when the party was given the, the information regarding the answer. So the, the allowance comes in as a court process to allow them time to file an answer or objection to the garnishment, uh, which is typically ten business days. You can then also allow five calendar days for, for mailing. And uh, at that point is usually when it's forwarded to or for judicial signature and, and consideration. So so that is that is a good rule of thumb and, and and as your court is now moving forward to it, there are other courts that probably have that as well. So it's not uncommon. And yes. On our answer form,
2: we actually the Supreme Court actually put boxes so that we will be out as to how the sheet served the debtor and also the so. But if they said, the employee is right there, we handed it to them.
5: Then the judge would only calculate like 10 business days. Any time after that 10 business days, now they can sign that particular day. right? Correct. Well, and, and, and that is uh, another good example of whether they allow the mailing time prior to or after the fact. Um, what, one of the things we'll talk about is how much time you have to get that signed um, the actual order of continually signed. we'll get to that so uh, you do have a cushion there so if you went five days before or five days after it it really shouldn't um, affect your ability to get the signed timely uh, ultimately so if, if you if you want to to look at it the way Mary brought it up and and look into the, t- the mailing beforehand you can or if it's a rule of thumb you keep it after the fact It shouldn't, hopefully, sway your your numbers or cause you any kind of concern with it getting signed time.
6: Yes. uh, See, in our court, our our courts will watch for that because our answer will say, so no matter when the answer is filed, even attached with the uh, the continuing link, they say mail it when it passed 20 days. So generally, we'll just use 20 straight days because you're talking about 10 business days Plus five mailing day, plus two weekends, so four days. Right. So you're talking about twenty days, so we just right. the just set twenty days. If we see the answer says we email out, past twenty days, then we just follow the judge to sign. Right. So we need administrative to do that. Keep the time on I'm watching. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I uh that things
4: happen, so I scheduled this for a
0: fifteen minute break. We can take the fifteen minute break, or do you want to go and get done at three thirty? all right well power power through okay
5: I'll I'll be quiet and talk faster okay so uh, as the slide as you see it talks about servers uh, service by garnishi, or service to garnishi by process server uh, if the order, them, they'll get an order to show cause date. If the garnishy fails to appear, uh, default judgment could be rendered against the garnishy because they didn't do what they were required to do by filing <coughs> an answer. If they file an answer um, and the order to show cause has been filed, then uh, the court can vacate the hearing uh, if it's done at least five days prior to the hearing. So this is the slide that talks about the the numbers. If you wanted to go back and review this slide with the the filled out uh, non-exempt earning statement. Debtor can object. So,
0: but. All right, so the uh, debtor can't file a written objection and request for hearing on the written answer the non-exempt earnings statement at any stage of the garnishment. The hearing shall be set within 10 working days. After filed with the court or with good cause, the court must take judgment debtor's rights into consideration. A party filing the objection shall deliver a copy of the form to all parties to the writ. Okay, at the hearing, the judge determines if the writ is valid against the debtor the amount outstanding on the judgment plus accruing costs. The debtor was employed by the garnishing at the time of the writ was served. Earnings were owed or would be owed within 60 days after the service of the writ. And the debt was at the time of service subject to uh, debt scheduling. And we did talk about debt scheduling at the beginning. Um, I I haven't seen that. What generally happens at the hearing, uh, the person, because of an oddity in the forms, the person does check that the judgment is not valid. Uh, 98% of the time, a judgment is valid. Uh, they have to file a motion to set aside or to vacate the judgment, uh, and they try to attack it by a, the garnishment proceeding. That's not proper. Um, really, the only issue, generally, 98% of the time that you're gonna have is whether to reduce the amount of the the, uh, garnishment from 25% to 15%. And so if if you find clear and convincing evidence that the debtor or his family would suffer extreme economic hardship, you may reduce the amount to to not less than 15%. Um, And about 75% of the time, the uh, judgment creditor does not have an objection to reducing to 15%. Um, I've only seen it happen a few times where they will object to that. And if they do, then just start going through the numbers with, with the uh, debtor. Charles, yes.
3: I have a question regarding two percent. I had a case where um,
4: the um, supposedly debtor came and he said, that's not me, and I had the attorney, and um, the, I left him alone because they wanted to talk. Because the, the guy, was really calm. He was, you know, that's not me. I've never lived in this address. This is what I do, and, and he said my, my workplace is no, because they never had, you know, a, a garbage man. You know, paperwork is sent to them. I walked away, came back, and the attorney had had verified this guy was not it. Okay, what what would it, what should have been the proper steps after that? Because this attorney said, yeah, he's not it. But since he wasn't, he was a contract attorney, he said, let me go back, talk to you know my folks, and see like in 30 or 60 days we'll do something. He said, no, no 60 days. But what would have been the proper proceedings at that? Because I want that guy to walk away. All
0: right, so the question was um, Judge Lopez had a situation where the uh, creditor attorney uh, did. Con, uh, did confirm that the garnishment was not the person in the judgment. Now, the, the way I phrased it like that is, was the person, the defendant not the person in the judgment, or was the judgment against the wrong person?
4: That believe it's wrong, uh, against the wrong person. Okay. His name was Salvador Martinez, and it was not the Salvador Martinez.
0: All right, so if the judgment is against Salvador E. Martinez, and the person trying to be garnished is Salvatore F. Martinez, then you would reject the garnishment as not a valid judgment, because it's not a valid judgment against the person, because they've got the wrong person. If they're both Salvatore E. Martinez, um, you're going to have to say that's a valid judgment until it's declared invalid by a motion to set aside. Now, with the attorney saying that's not, I agree that this is the wrong person, then you can probably, as long as the judgment creditor is agreeing to that, you can go ahead and quash the garnishment. Um, but if they're not going to agree to that, then you're going to, you would say, um, uh, you, you, you're saying this isn't you, but this is the this is you in the judgment, and this was a valid judgment. You can file a motion to set aside the judgment, but until or unless that is done, this is a valid judgment. The debtor has to file that. Yes.
7: I um, was a uh, can't give more time. Uh, I, I'm trying to, I can't remember what uh, transpired in my situation, but it was a tenant paid rent via Zell Pay or Chase Zell Pay. She paid it to uh, uh, Hernandez, and uh, the, the defendant said it wasn't him. She still wasn't convinced, so. I wish I could recall what transpired, but I did not dismiss it. Um, I feel as though I said more
0: time, up, but I can't recall it. Yeah, and, and you can always um, continue the matter for the parties to investigate further. And I think that's what it was. I knew there was more time related to the
5: situation. And, and al- along with this slide, uh, at the very beginning, it talks about if at the hearing. Uh, over the last few years, one of the things we've seen are parties communicating a little bit more, and the hearing necessity being reduced because parties are now stipulating to the reduction from the 25 to 15. So, um, as as you go along and you sign these more, you may see where reductions or orders of continuing are being submitted at the reduced amount because the parties have communicated and uh, the need for the hearing. To have this understood, uh, it's just not uh, as common as it used to be because the parties are communicating more nowadays than in the past. So,
0: and sir, and, and, you know, we we went through the paperwork there. Uh, I can't recall a single time I did not reduce from 25 to 15 percent. I mean, most of the people who are coming into court before us who are being garnished, their um, take-home pay isn't that high. And it's, it's, I think it's pretty easy to find that hardship would occur um, that would justify reducing to 15%. And that's why for the most part, the judgment creditors do agree to do that and even don't even want to waste their time coming down. They'll just agree to reduce to 15%. It's generally the mom and pops um, who are angry and they don't want to reduce to the 15%. All right, so, again, um, this is not the time to attack the judgment. The creditor has to file, timely file a continuing lien. Uh, they have to do a creditor's report, and they have to timely release the garnishment. The, uh, we had an issue with respect to judgments. Last year, the legislature extended judgments from five years to ten years. Uh, but they did it very importantly and it wasn't clear whether judgments that had already expired after five years but were within the ten years whether those got resurrected and became valid again I called them zombie judgments Uh, Pima you know so we suggested that zombie judgments should not be allowed Pima County allowed them the legislature did fix that this year and um, said that there shall be no zombie judgments. Uh, So if a judgment was valid on August 3rd of last year, um, then uh, that automatically extended to 10 years. Uh, If it had already expired, it's dead. So whether it was valid or renewed um, and valid last year, in August it, it became it, it automatically became ten years now if somebody tries to file uh, a renewal after only five years go ahead and accept it we shouldn't be rejecting it um, but strictly speaking the expiration dates expi- expanded another five years All right, continuing liens become invalid and uh, are of no force and effect if the judgment is satisfied in full, is vacated, or expires, if the debtor leaves the garnishment's employee for more than 60 days, if the creditor releases the garnishment, if proceedings are stayed by another court such as a bankruptcy court, if the debtor does not earned any non exempt earnings for at least 60 days, or if the court orders that the garnishment be quashed. And if a creditor has not filed a petition for an order of continuing lien within 45 days after filing of the answer, any earnings held by the garnishee shall be released to the debtor, and the garnishee shall be discharged from any liability on the garnishment.
3: Do some, do some courts make it a priority in EDMS to, for the, the uh, signing uh, of a Okay. Some of the courts I've been in, those, those uh, continuing applications are continually may sit there for days before the court gets to them. Some courts, like the ones I work in, actually have it as a priority uh, yes, priority in the EDMS to direct the judge to get at it right now.
5: Yes, there are many courts that will. will um, prioritize these because of the time frame and because of the urgency that they need to be signed when they're submitted through EMS there are many courts that will put it as a priority uh, there's nothing that that mandates that that court does that it also depends on how the um, the court signs or how the judge signs and what their cues actually look like if it's needed but there are many courts who, who will prioritize those
0: Right, and um, the creditors do have to keep track of the money. They do have to file reports. For a contempt proceeding, any of the three parties in a garnishment can request a hearing if one of the parties is not complying with their duties. The court can award against the creditor uh, if they fail to, for example, if they fail to submit the creditor's report, they can award attorney's fees, court costs, and may award additional amounts, not less than 100, nor more than 1,000. The court can award against the garnishee to the debtor who petitions the court of non-compliance an amount to, to compensate actual losses, attorney's fees, court costs, and may award additional amounts not more than $400. The court can award against the garnishee to the creditor who petitions the court of non-compliance to uh, deliver non-exempt earnings or statement to a creditor in amount to compensate for actual losses, attorney's fees, court costs, and award of up to $400. Quite often,
1: the creditor is asking for a judgment, not the actual loss, of women, uh, or she shouldn't collect
0: uh, the, the judge should look at that carefully. Uh, Andrew asked about them um, asking for the amount of the full judgment. Right, uh, 121598.14 does provide for priority wage garnishments and levies are ranked first come first served. Garnishments for support take priority over garnishments on debts, so that's why the child support was uh, t- uh, was considered first. All right, so if the debtor has one garnishment, the second garnishment comes in and if no money is caught after two paydays on the second garnishment, the second garnishment becomes invalid. It's the responsibility of the garnish to notify the creditor. So that's why, again, if you can try to garnish twice but with the, m- the amounts that are involved here, there probably isn't anything there and it's going to become invalid. So those are earnings garnishments. Any questions on earnings? Or not.
5: No questions. Okay. So non-earnings, uh, indebtedness, owned owed for monies which are not earnings. Um, typically, you'll see these through bank accounts, monies held by a garnishee on behalf of a debtor, by a tenant, personal property of a debtor that is in the possession of the garnishee, safety deposit boxes are examples. And shares and securities, stocks and bonds. A tenant has a garnish sheet. A judgment against the debtor who has rental property. Uh, can one time garnishment, not a continuing lien? Uh, one or more tenants can be garnished. A creditor must issue a separate garnishment for each tenant. Yes. So, for example, if the the debtor uh, of a case owns property, rental property that they're currently renting out, the garnishment can be filed to collect on the money that's received from the renter. Because the debtor is is receiving the, I want to call it income, but the the revenue from the renter. So that then can be subject to being collected by who the hell?
4: Because you know when I hear tenant,
3: you're
5: know, So Yeah, but it, it but this is for those those pro per cases yes. that may owe somebody else money. That tenant could be the money paid could go to the other creditor. But who's the, plaintiff? the plaintiff in that matter would be the well. It's always going to be the original creditor. So the original creditor would then file a garnishment, a non-earnings garnishment. Uh, and the, the garnish would be the tenant so again not not very common but it can happen does this is does this
3: box address the issue of where the getter is self-employed um, I don't the see something. Do the be the
1: uh,
0: all right, the question was um, if the debtor is self-employed, that's gonna be a tough one, because you really look at, you have to look at the nature of the self-employment. Um.
5: Creditor's responsibility. Um, again, the creditors responsible to serve the sheet, file application for judgment and judgment. File order to show cause on failure to answer and serve Garn and file the petition in order discharging Garnish. Creditor serves the Garnishy. The judgment creditor in this manner required for a summons upon Garnish serve two sets of garnishment forms, one for the garnishy, one for the debtor. Money's owing to a debtor by financial institution may be levied by serving the garnishment upon the manager or other officer at any office or branch located in the county where the account is located. Um, Side note, if the account number is unknown, the creditor emits a $25 search fee payable to the bank. I'm not sure if it's still $25, but there is the opportunity for them to search to determine if the person does have an active account garnishes responsibilities some of their responsibilities include serve the debtor with documents hold the funds answer uh, and file with the court and serve the parties the garnish shall deliver the judgment debtor within three days from receiving the garnishment not including weekends or holidays Uh, serve uh, to deliver the summons and writ of garnishment judgment provided by the creditor and notice to judgment debtor and request for hearing form uh, the answer is not given to them at this this point on bank accounts a financial institution shall not withhold from the judgment debtor the amount set forth as exempt pursuant to section 331126 subsection a paragraph nine which states uh, exempt amount of three hundred dollars held in a single account in any one financial institution also lists other exemptions such as insurance uh, benefits Uh, there are there are other uh, exemptions but um, they cannot take every single penny that's there they have to to leave them at least the 300 dollars For the Garnishee to answer, the Garnishee's answer is due 10 working days from the day the Garnishee is served uh, according to 12 C. Garnishee either hand delivers or mails to the debtor uh, plus a notice of the hearing request, the creditor, and to the court. Garnishee's answer, uh, if there's more than one debtor, Garnishee To answer regarding all debtors garnishing must state the date and manner of delivery of the answer to the debtor and creditor Uh, and this is important because the time is computed from the date debtor was served with the answer in calculating the time frame in which the debtor has to file objection to the garnishing's answer bank deposit made in the names of two or more persons Uh, these are these are things that uh, garnishment of bank account in names of two or more people Uh, so if the bank deposit is made with names of two or more uh, gar shall impound all and shall promptly notify each person Uh, answer under oath upon the filing of the answer the court shall join all persons who appear to have interest and the court may order monies not belonging to the debtor to be released. Question. Yes.
6: So, at this time, when the uh, Judgment Creditor filed uh, the garnishment Judgment judgment, um, against the Ganeshi to ask the money to be released, at this time, they usually file the motion for third party jointer, so there is another name attached to the account. Now, the question is this, if the judgment creditor did not file it and we know it's a joint account, does the court compel the the, uh, the creditor to file a motion or let the the judgment debtor to file an objection?
5: Uh, So, if I understand the question, if the court is aware that it's a joint account,
6: Yes, and
5: and... and the third-party joiner is not filed. Not
6: filed because usually it not. But last time we have one didn't filed. So Paul asked me, says, should we send the corrective action notice? And I, I say, you know, maybe it should be should be a judgment debtor or the, other, the third party file objection. So
5: I I don't necessarily know if it's a, uh, mm-hmm. the best practice to ask. Either the garnish the parties to co- or compel either party to file. Um, I think if if that's the case where it's clear that it's just a joint account and the third party joiner or wasn't notified or they, they didn't yeah. properly finish all the steps, then I think that could be grounds to not issue the judgment against Garnishie, um and just not sign the notice to release the funds. I don't necessarily know if it would be the best interest for the court to require. A party to act versus just not giving the creditor what they're asking for because they didn't necessarily follow the proper information because it's the creditor who's going to file that motion to join the party which we're going to talk about here in a second so if the creditor doesn't file that motion to join yet they want the money to be released that may be grounds for the money not to be released because they didn't follow all the proper steps so I, I don't necessarily, I don't, I wouldn't suggest to compel,
6: so I would just not. suggest
5: to not
6: sign. But if there's no objection to mind, by either the debtor or the third party joined so set it, so the Court's position to say, I'm not going to sign it, there. there's no objection. Well, and, and... and because and the, the third party joined there, they when their money accounts being frozen, frozen, they should then know this be service and say, hey, your account's been frozen, your money shouldn't they file a judge and say, okay, hey, that's, not, that's my money, not defendant's money, but all the money. As far as my mm-hmm. money, my money should not be frozen. Isn't that the, the third party should be the one file
5: objection?" Well, the, the, the one thing that you can always remember, if, the, if it's that difficult to, if it's not a straightforward filing and signage and there's obstacles that prevents the judge from, from the ability to sign comfortably, that they can always as Charles indicated uh, set this for a hearing bring the parties before them to determine why this this case or this this filing wasn't completed entire entirely so um, if there's questions that arise they could always set this for a hearing and bring everybody to the courthouse okay. yes it
2: said the court shall join all persons, and I don't think it's the responsibility of the court to compound somebody to do something because now we're standing over what we're supposed to be doing. So they don't do it. They don't do the joint according to this. The court shall join it. So if nobody objects, then the court is free to sign the 15 So no, I would not send a correct election.
6: That's what we, did. we didn't do anything. We say, yeah, if there's no objection, then we just correct.
5: Okay. okay so yeah there's there's various things but um, yeah to, to not sign maybe be in, in the best interest uh, so this is, the slide talks about the, the motion being filed to join the parties uh, limited to join in garnishment process and the process allows the person who is not a party to lawsuit to file a request for a hearing so that person uh, has that ability as well Judgment against garnishee uh, answer shows money held at the time of service and no time of injection is filed uh, Creditor files application judgment to release funds court enters judgment for the non-exempt monies held by the garnishee plus Amounts for garnishee's answer if requested uh, The judgment cannot be more than outstanding balance including costs and in, for garnishment and answer uh, garnishment judgment form to be signed by judge uh, just to just to clarify one last thing as you notice this is called judgment against garnishing oftentimes uh, this has to be clarified if a garnishing defaults that is called a judgment against our or could lead to a judgment against Garnishing in non-earnings the final step is also called a judgment of Garnishing
6: God, judgment.
5: Yeah. So, um, while the the terms are the same, uh, sometimes they are often confused, and sometimes when you see it before you, you have to sit back and figure out what kind of garnishment this is and where we're at, and then it will make a little bit more sense. But uh, the terms are uh, do have the same name. Recently, gotten rid of the property of the judgment debtor that has been holding. That's a defense. Suppose the garnish was a bank, and the judgment debtor cleaned out the account just before the writ of garnishment hit. Unfortunately, there's not much the bank can do if that that happens. The answer says uh, these things: a, monies are not owed uh, when the writ was served, or. B, when the garnishy is corporation in which the judgment debtor is alleged to own shares, stock, or an interest, uh, did not have any non-exempt personal property of the debtor, and answer states, judgment debtor is not and was not when the writ was served the owner of any shares or interest, the court shall enter judgment, discharging the garnishy. When the garnish is discharged, because his answer states there is no money or property, judgment creditor shall be taxed on answer fee. Uh, statute states reasonable compensation to garnishee. On a judgment releasing funds to the garnishee, fees shall be taxed against the judgment debtor. In a garnishment in which an answer has been filed, uh, probably with no monies uh, withheld, Garnishment shall not be dismissed except upon notice to the garnishee and an opportunity to be heard until the question of the garnishee's answer and attorney fees is satisfied. Uh, Basically, as it states, somebody has to pay the garnishee. Fails to answer, the creditor may petition for an order to show cause for garnishee's appearance. However, garnishee can file and serve an answer on the creditor at least five days prior to the order to show cause date if the garnishee sheet fails to appear or file and serve the answer uh, court may enter a default judgment against the garnishee for the full amount of the judgment and the court may award attorneys fees for the, uh, to the creditor uh, service of the order to show cause must be done by a processor judgment the uh, creditor filed for a writ of garnishment directed against the contents of a safety deposit box. Uh, the, the court will hold a hearing. bank charges about $150 or so uh, and the bank will drill open the box, take an inventory of the contents, give a copy of the inventory of the judgment creditor and let the judgment creditor come back to the court for further order if the contents include something of levy uh, oftentimes, this can also be done through a writ of execution as well. Let's
0: skip a hand. Let's go. All right. So the, these hearings are so rare that I do want to skip a hand. If we do have any questions, let me know. But these these hearings are so rare that I, I do want to spend. and make sure we have enough time to spend on deferrals and waivers and appeal uh, bonds. And so we'll just finish this out with bankruptcy. The notice of bankruptcy does state proceedings. Uh, the clerk will complete the notice of bankruptcy form. If judgment has been entered, any post-judgment proceedings will not go forth until that bankruptcy, um, until there's a stay left or the bankruptcy is dismissed. So, do we have any questions about garnishment before we move on? <laughs> certainly, you can review the materials on the remainder of, of the garnishments, but like I said, they, those are so rare. Right. One of the things that you are gonna see a lot as pro tems and judges are uh, the waivers and deferrals and to a lesser extent, the appeals and costs, appeal bonds and fees. Um, so we do wanna spend some time on waivers and deferrals and we'll to Okay, so waivers and deferrals, uh,
5: no fee there, are, there is a statute that actually states no fees paid shall be refunded the uh, sp- Supreme Court shall adopt forms and procedures uh, the deferral fees, fees deferral of fees granted if applicant establishes by affidavit including supporting documentation uh, one proof that the applicant is permanently unable to pay the fees or costs the court shall waive them what qualifies? Uh, few things. If the application, or if the applicant receives one or more of the benefits, temporary assistance, food stamp program, general assistance, uh, supplemental security income program, applicant's income insufficient or barely sufficient, or as a 12302d, upon proof that the applicant is permanently unable to pay the court, shall waive the fees. Typically the court staff will collect this information uh so that way it's part of your decision making process. Yes. Maybe to more to
7: the audience. You guys don't generally give just blanket waivers to you. Just no matter who makes a request, you don't always you know just say yes to them. You um, I I don't okay, either I had you know, someone who's was sixteen hundred plus, and her car payment was seven hundred. But her income was a substantial amount, so I deny it. Based on the premise of she overextended herself personally, but there was no other reason to give it to her. All right.
0: So Judge Sauls asked the, the crowd if we just generally grant these, and the answer is no. You should be reviewing the application. Uh, if, as to the, um, the previous slide, if, if there. On food stamps or temporary assistance, that should be. But if if they're not, if they're actually earning income, you do want to look at the the numbers.
4: Can I just make a comment? The other day, I had on which I thought, I think she can afford this now in So I asked someone who had other thoughts, and so I was referred to the federal federal property line, and I thought that was good because I'd like to be able to. Have a reason as to why I do do not do something, and so of course when I looked it up, you know, she could, she obviously could,
7: you know, afford to to, to make those those fees.
6: Question about the federal uh, public guideline. So in the, I mean, on the guideline there are many percentage. So what percentage does the uh, judge follow? Yeah, 150 percent. I just don't know. Um, Some of the people who uh, requested a waiver and got denied and asked us, I said, Judge, rule product according to uh, the public guideline. And they said, follow which one? Well, I mean, is there any guideline uh, a judge follows, like 150% or?
0: And, uh, and the question is, which federal poverty guidelines? Uh, the judge should be looking at the numbers overall to determine whether or not the person, whether or not the, the fee should be waived or deferred. So oh, that's not specific. It, that's going to be up to each individual judge.
5: Okay. So what can be waived or deferred? Uh, filing fees, insurance, subpoena, or issuance of subpoena. I'm sorry. Uh, One certified judgment, constable fee for serving complaint, appeal preparation, uh, initial deferral or waiver remains in effect to Superior Court. uh, We'll need to complete a new application for Superior Court. The 12302F on the application, applicant acknowledges under oath and signs consent to judgment for the fees. Fees are due 30 days from final judgment, or uh, one, established schedule of payments, two, supplemental application for further deferral. Uh, court can defer or waive fees. Uh, a request for hearing within 20 days of court's denial. Uh, applicant is to pro- promptly notify the court of any financial changes. Order the county to pay it does not limit the court's discretion in deferring, waiving, or ordering the county to pay any fees and costs as may be necessary. No court fees shall be charged. Uh, one, the state, county, a city, a town, or a political subdivision of a county. A commission board or department of the state, county, a city, a town, or a political subdivision of a county, or an, offic- an official of the state, county, city, town, or political subdivision of a county who is a party to an action in his official capacity. Procedure um, brief overview, plaintiff. Uh, Litigant completes the form, clerk checks for completeness, clerk prepares an order for the judge, enters a case in the system, judge grants, gives plaintiff copy, complaint, summons order, court will have served by, uh, if it's a small claim, certified mail, if it's civil, uh, can be done with the constable. Uh, that's if the judge or yourselves decide to waive service. I know from experience that I've seen where waivers only include the filing fees, and then it's still the responsibility of the plaintiff to then get that filing served. So it really depends on the order that's signed um, and, and what's actually being waived. Uh, if it's the defendant, the litigant completes the form, checks for uh, staff, checks for completeness, clerk prepares an order for the judge, enters case in the system, judge grants. Uh, we then give the defendant two copies of the answer or order. Uh, They're filing, and then instruct the defendant to mail a copy of the answer to the plaintiff.
0: There is a provision; it, it's not in your um, paperwork here, but there is a pro- uh, provision of the statute where you can deny a, a waiver or deferral for a vexatious litigant. Um, that is a person who's actually been declared to be a vexatious litigant by Superior Court, uh, which. It happens occasionally, and the staff will know when it has happened. If they tell you it's happened, double check that there's actually a Superior Court order that this person is, is a vexatious litigant. Otherwise, you have to you have to take a look at the request for the waiver on its own merits and not take into account the person is the, that this person is probably a vexatious litigant. The other thing I want to uh, say is Danny uh, the. Court staff does prefer that judges waive rather than defer. Why is that? Uh,
5: typically, there's no method to track and collect for deferral, so if somebody is set up on some sort of agreement, uh, the court does not have methods like they do for other cases or other fines or fees owed. We cannot put them on any kind of official payment plan. We cannot send them to collections if they don't pay. and then it comes to the point where if they're not making their agreement and it's time for trial or hearing well how does the court act move if they haven't done what they said they were going to do so typically a waiver defer a waiver is preferred because um, that will allow the parties to move forward and the fees will not need to be uh, tracked uh, because the court really doesn't have the, the Ability to really mandate those payments on deferrals.
0: So, practice tip for the pro if you want to be invited back, you waive, you don't defer.
1: <laughs>
7: All right, so any questions on waivers and deferrals? put uh, on the Can you add applicable to
1: appeal?
0: The question is what you have to add not applicable to appeal? No, because they would they they have to file a new one when they appeal. Yeah. So no, you don't have to do that. Okay. Oh, they have to file a new one when they appeal. In fact, we're going to talk about appeal costs and bonds in a sec. So any other questions about deferrals and waivers? Okay. What I there's just a, a couple things I really want to drive home here. So you can see the uh, appeal filing fees have just gone up. There are no fees for protective orders. Uh, Cost bonds for civil and evictions are $250, you can waive those. There are no cost bonds for civil traffic, protective orders, or criminal. And so once again, if they can't post a cost bond, they do have the ability to file an affidavit. uh, And you can grant that or you can deny that. Uh, If they want to post a bond for civil traffic to appeal your decision, uh, they have to post the amount of the fine. And so one of the things that I will do when, when I'm doing civil traffic is, uh, say if you do want to file an appeal, the appeal will be based on a transcript of today's hearing, you won't get a new hearing, because they'll, otherwise they'll think that they're gonna get another day in court and they really don't, uh, in addition to posting the bond. Would you want to say anything about these Uh
5: Very similar. Uh, to the cost bond, um, typically if there's no objection, it can be ruled on if there is an objection. Uh, there usually has to be a, sit, a hearing set uh, and then the judge will then determine if, if the bond shall be waived or if it needs to be paid. Um, as Charles kind of indicated with the waiver deferrals, the uh, court staff usually would prefer that they be waived um, because we would like to see the appeal move forward and be judged on its merits versus person not moving forward because they don't have the two hundred and fifty dollars to post the cost bond. So uh, but again okay. HK case uh, the, the court would what I said was the court would like to see the appeal move forward to superior court to be judged on the merits of the appeal versus it may be stopped because the person does not and cannot afford the two hundred and fifty cost bond. The
6: cost bonds cover the appellees the filing costs at the Superior Court so it's very important to see if a colleague object to it. So that's why when we we see this inability to post a bond, we call and fast right away to a colleague tell them and say, do you have objections? Because we have you know, like for emission, we within uh, five days to uh, objections. So that's very important because that is is the colleague's cost.
0: All right, and what we really wanted to focus on uh, in, in this part, because uh, where I will get a lot of questions, uh, is on the supersedious bonds. Supersedious bonds does stop the party from collecting on a judgment or issuing a writ of restitution. Uh, supersedious bonds cannot be waived. And um, you'll see the trial court retains those bonds. And again, the, the biggest takeaway from here uh, for an eviction action, there are two types of supersedious bonds. One is the amount, the amount of the judgment, which does stay collection of the judgment. Most of the time, the tenants aren't going to care about that. Uh, the most important one is the supersedious bond with respect to ongoing rent. And that is the one that will stay the, uh, the writ of restitution, and why I wanted to spend some time on that is that is calculated really oddly. It's not. It's calculated from the date of the judgment to the next rental due date. Uh, you divide the monthly rent by 30. That equals the daily rate. Then you multiply the daily rate by the remaining days left for the month. And then you add the amount from number two plus cost plus attorney's fees for the supersedes bond. So how this is counterintuitive is if you evict someone on June 10th, the judgment is going to include the entire rent for the month of June. The supersedious bond is going to be from June 11th through June 30th, and so, and they're going to say, wait a minute, um, now you're putting that in the, in the, in both supersedious bonds, and to an extent they're correct, because it's part of, of the judgment supersedious bond and then days 11 through 30 are going to be part of the rent supersedious bond. Nevertheless, that is how that first month is going to be calculated, is it is a portion of the remaining month, the remaining rent for the month, even though it is included in the other supersedious. Is that clear or that confusing? Because the first time most judges encounter that is pretty Uh, confusing so we actually do have the worksheet for that and that is at the end of your packet And we're going to put it up here court staff does have it as an excel so they can actually do the math all right so danny take us through this
5: okay so at the very top, we discuss about the top uh, the cost bond. So that's the 250 that you see there.
0: Um, yeah, that's not doing anything here. Um, so let me put some numbers in there.
5: Okay, so we can we can go through this. So let's say the first part of the supersedious bond is to stay the enforcement of the money judgment. Uh, judgment award is typically the final amount uh, minus the attorneys' fees and the court costs. Those are separated out. So. Let's say the total judgment is 3000 but the attorney's fees are 500 Oh, you've got the house. Go ahead. Oh. All right, so 3000 No, that's actually going to be 2000 That's why. I, oh, okay. So, All right. So then 500 and 500 So what we've calculated here is the bond uh, amount, uh, bond fixed amount is 3000 That's the $2,000 for the principal and other fees and the court costs and attorney's fees are split out. Uh, what it will then do is it will bring down and let's say rent per month is $2,000. and So it prorates it. The next rental due date is, what do we want to say, July 1st? I think you have to do 7 1. I don't know if I'll take that. And then Okay. And the judgment was entered on, let's say, today's date. So then it'll calculate. uh, I want to scroll back up just a slight. Okay. So then over to the right as you see the prorated rent came out to sorry, I can't see, 266.67 uh, plus the attorney's fees and court costs of 500 so this amount of 1266.67 would be the amount that needs to be posted for the parties to be able to stay in the property through up to july 1st now on july 1st they're going to need to pay their monthly rent to the court or else the bond posted and the the stay that they have could be lifted. This final bottom section uh, is the bond amount that that is will cover or need to be posted if they wanted to stop both our stay both the uh, possession of the property as well as the enforcement or collection on the money judgment. So uh, if there's three parts to this: uh, each individual supersedious bond and then the combination of the two at the bottom.
0: any questions yeah since there we did this on june 27th uh, there's only a few days left in the month so that's not that outrageous but if you were evicting someone on july 4th uh, then you'd go from july 5 through uh, the 31st which would make that a much higher number well if we
5: want we could change the june 27th to uh, let's say june 10th. i think we kind of that was our example
0: So you can see, just changing that from to June 10th raised the bond uh, quite a bit. The rent through the rent for the rest of the month is 1,400. All right. So any questions about the supersedious bond there? And back to the slides. I'm not going to put the PowerPoint back up, but if you go back to page 11 you'll see the failure to pay rent. If the failure does pay, the uh, tenant does, failed to pay rent during the appeal, the landlord can file a motion to live stay, the justice court shall conduct a hearing and um, can go ahead and uh, execute the writ of restitution. Um, Danny just asked a great question a couple days ago, Some tenant attendant tried appealing uh, the uh, superior court's ruling on uh, the eviction—that's not an appealable order, so uh, that isn't going to work. And then the last slide: there is no supersedious bond on protective orders. There's also no stay pending appeal uh, on a protective order. The protective order does stay in effect during the appeal. All right, so that is our presentation on odds and ends. Is there any question about anything we've covered today? Any other questions? Anything else you want to see trainings on? I just have a quick clarification. Yes. In terms of the rid of garnish.
5: If I remember correctly, I don't think there's a time frame for the order of continuing to be filed. I think the time frame comes once it's filed to be issued. Um, there's certain, certain parts of the garnishment that have time frames and others that there's just no definite time or nothing in rule or statute that says this has to be done by this point. So um, as far as um, when it can be filed, I mean obviously it should be filed promptly because Realistically, they shouldn't be receiving any money until that order is filed and issued. Um, but theres I don't think there's anything in, in the rules or statutes that talk about the filing of it. It's just the, the, the signing or issuing of the order um, that has to be 45 days from the filing. Signed. Yes, within 45 days of that filing. From when it's filed, yeah. But how quickly that creditor gets on it and says, here in court, your Judge, this is what I need signed. Um, there's nothing that mandates you have to have this in within this time. Uh, now, could that mean the person no longer works there and, and, and moves to another state and now are uh, unable to be found? Yes. So they may want to get on it as soon as possible. But the only mandate comes from when it's filed to be signed. By and that's why it prioritized. Correct. In a lot of the courts. In many of the courts, yes.
0: All right, any other questions? Right, please leave your evaluations on the back table. Scott is going to validate the parking. Please drive carefully. Have a good weekend. you,